Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I want to spend some time in the coming weeks talking a little bit about the heroes of the Bible. Of course, the greatest hero of all is the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, many of the heroes that you find in the Old Testament and elsewhere we refer to as types and shadows of, you know, they're in some ways depictions of the Christ that would come. All of them were imperfect. None of them were the spotless Lamb of God that Jesus Christ was, but we see in people like Joseph and Moses and Abraham, we see images and reflections of the Savior at times in the events of their lives. And it's dawned on me that, particularly for the young people, you know, there's a lot made in our society of hero culture. There's hero movies, you know, these superheroes and whatnot. And they kind of capture the fascination and the imagination of young people. And honestly, those stories go back you know, well into the early parts of the 20th century when you have people like Superman and, you know, characters like this, Captain America, those things came up in the, I guess, in the 30s and 40s and back in the comic book era. So even some of us who are too old to actually go watch some of these movies that come out now, you probably had uh, somewhere in your toy box growing up some uh, Superman comic books and things like that. Captain America and Green Lantern and all these different characters and these heroes that you kind of grow up learning about these stories. And you know, those are fun kind of stories to learn. I think lots of people enjoy those in a lot of different ways. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the Bible has a lot of heroes in it. In one sense, they're referred to as saviors in the plural. You know, the Lord sent saviors to his people. Now, that is a very important observation. Because if there's only one salvation in the Bible, and the Lord said that these people were sent as saviors, then those people must have been involved in your eternal salvation, right? Because it said they were saviors and they saved people from something. That observation alone teaches you that there's more than one salvation taught in the Bible. And those people were saviors. They were saviors that were sent in temporal affairs, right? Moses was sent to lead the people uh, of Israel out of Egypt. And in that sense, there was a temporal salvation visited upon them alongside his ministry, right? He was in charge of that, so to speak, from a human perspective. So it's important for us to realize that there are characters in the Bible that we might regard as the heroes of the Bible. Sometimes they're called the patriarchs or the, the fathers and, and things like that. And some of them are prophets, brave people with interesting and brave stories. And I intend to look at some of those as we go through some instances in the Old Testament in the coming weeks. However, today I want to start with a little bit of a strange place to start, I guess, to talk about heroes. I want to talk about some lessons that we can learn from Saul. Now Saul was, as we will find out, the result of Israel sort of saying to God, we want a king. We want to be a nation just like everybody else. And so give us a king. And I suspect that most people would not look in the Bible and regard Saul as a hero. And I'm not really trying to promote him as a hero, but I am trying to promote him as an example and show some of what God did in his life. He's a big character in the Old Testament. And he is the person who was king before David became king. So he kind of predates 
or preceded David and his kingdom. And David was certainly a hero of the Old Testament. But I want to look at Saul because I think there's some lessons we can get from Saul. And I'm going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And this is an interesting time in Israel's history. It came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abiah, and they were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. And all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel in Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, that's what people are coming to him and saying. They're coming to Samuel and they've got two observations here, or they've got two things that they're saying. The first is, your sons are a real problem, right? They probably should not have been put in the positions they were. They are kind of in the Lord's church, if you want to kind of use that term loosely at that time. And they're judges over Israel, so they're in some sort of official position here. And they probably should not have been put there. They're certainly not fulfilling their office the way they should have, right? They're more interested in uh, money than they are in following the Lord, and that is not an uncommon thing. There's a lot of people who look at ministry as a mechanism for making money. It's a money-making deal on a lot of, for a lot of people. So they come to him and they say, uh, their sons walk not in thy ways. In other words, they're bringing in some strange ideas and they're following after money. That's not what Samuel did. And that's a true observation. But you can have a legitimate observation of something that is wrong and then come to a wrong conclusion about what the solution is. And honestly, that simple statement is often what plagues God's people. A lot of us could look around and see all kinds of things that are wrong. But then if you start saying, well, how are we going to fix it? There's not necessarily a guarantee we're going to have consensus about what the right thing to do to fix it is, right? So that's the disconnect that's here. They see something that's wrong, and now they've got a solution that they're suggesting. By the way, I think this should shape the way we pray. A lot of times we believe that prayer is having to describe to God what He must do, as if God doesn't know better than we do what the problem is and what a better solution would be. And by the way, His ways are not our ways. So the ways that we might set before God, in all likelihood, may not be the way that God has for actually solving the problem, right? So... I wonder sometimes when I look at this passage, do I pray in this way? Do I pray as if I'm sort of, you know, put it in a crass way? Do I see God as sort of a cosmic vending machine, right? I just need to know that I got to push buttons B4 and he's going to give me the, uh, the Fritos, right? You know, sometimes I think we need to be careful about being too prescriptive about solutions to problems when we're praying to God. Because the solutions we come up with may not be the best way to handle it. Maybe the more worshipful thing is to say, Lord, this is troubling, this is vexing, this is a situation I'm in. You know it troubles me. There's nothing wrong with saying, I would like to see it turn out this way. But maybe the most worshipful part of that is to say, but you know better than I do. And thy will be done and not mine. I've set my cares before you and I'm going to trust you in this matter that you're going to deliver me. And that deliverance may not be the way that I thought I was going to be delivered. That's been my experience in my life on many occasions to such a degree that I've become more cautious about trying to prescribe to God specifically what needs to be done to solve a problem. 
But that's what they're doing here. They say the solution, now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. We want to be like everybody else. And that is a problem that plagues people. We kind of want to fit in. We don't want to be thought of as an odd duck. Can't we just be like everybody else? You know, why can't we have a king like all the other nations? Why do we have to be this oddball nation? Doesn't have a king. Verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that ye say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Now think about this turning point in Israel's history. God has been reigning over them. God told them, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead you. you know, I'm going to be your king Right in this arrangement. It's a, it's a theocracy. And as a result of their own disobedience and willfulness, they've gotten themselves in all kinds of problems over the years. And now rather than recognizing that their problem is their own willful disobedience and sinfulness and not following God and all those sorts of things and repenting of that and trying to get back on the plan, they've come up with a new solution. And the solution is, well, it's kind of saying, you know, God, your plan about you leading us is not really working out, right? We need a king like everybody else. And it's not a good solution. They're not rejecting Samuel, though Samuel was God's prophet. They're really rejecting God because God is the one who made the promises to lead them and they've decided they don't want that anymore. Verse 8, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. So to the extent that they're not following God, they're not following you either, Samuel. So don't, the Lord's kind of saying, it's really... Me, they're rejecting. The rejection of you in that is kind of secondary in the matter because you happen to be my prophet, but it's really God they're rejecting. Now, therefore, hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. That is a really frightening verse. Now, think about this. The principle that I draw out of this is that you can want something that is wrong for you to want. I think everybody's going to agree that rejecting God and saying, give us a king like all the other nations, that's a wrong-headed thing to do. But that's what they want. The frightening part of this is that you can get to such a point in your rebellion that God will say, you know what? I'll let you have it. Give them what they want. And I suspect that if we look back over the course of our own lives... You're going to find instances of rebellion in your life where you're saying, well, I just want things to be this way. And that thing that you want is actually contrary to the revealed will of God. And you've persisted in saying, I want that thing. And at some point, God says, well, I'll let you have it. That is a very frightening prospect. And it should put some guardrails around what we feel like we want. You see what I'm saying? Sometimes we want something and we feel that want for it so strongly that we kind of lose sight of whether or not it's right or wrong. It's just what we want, right? So we should be suspicious of what we want and we should be measuring that relative to the Word of God in our lives and do so with reverential fear knowing that, you know, in my rebellion, God could give me over to this and let me just have it and it would be very bad for me and it's going to be bad in many respects.
for them. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. Now listen to this. And he said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. You want a king? He said, you want a king. You don't get to wade into these waters and just have a figurehead like, give us a king and then make sure everything else works out. There's things that come with the idea of having a king. And you need to know this. And Samuel's telling them this. You want that? That's what you want? Well, here's what comes along with it. You don't get to have one without the other. In the same way that we may have carnal desires that we say this is something we want and God gives you over to it. He may give you over to it, but He's going to give you over to the consequences of doing those things as well. And that's a dreadful thing if you really think about it. He said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. Well, now at first blush, you might say, well, they're going to be, they're going to be army men. I mean, they're going to be great men working for the king. That may sound pretty good, but what, what are we talking about here? We're talking about doing the bidding of the king who is not God and has all the same frailties of human beings, which means there's all sorts of things they may get entangled in as a result. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties and will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. We're talking about warfare and being put to labor by this king. It's not going to be the way it is now. You're going to be working for him. See that? A lot of times I think their idea of what the king was going to be was almost like the king's working for us. He's going to do all good things for us. And Samuel's now saying, no, when you've got a king, you're working for him. Right? Maybe they didn't understand this because they had a king and they weren't working for that king. Right? They were rebelling against that king. They didn't understand something about this king-citizen relationship based on their own rebellion. But now that it's being put into a temporal circumstance like this, these aspects of service, conscription, and being under the authority of a king are going to be brought into their lives in a way that they're not going to be so, they're not going to be able to so easily avoid. Verse 13, and he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. All that cooking and baking that was going on in your house, that's going to be going on in the king's house now. You're going to have to figure out how to scrounge up some grub on your own as a result of that. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. See, it's not going to be just, well, it's all the same. Now we've got a king up there. We could say we're like everybody else. It's just things that come with the idea of having a king. It's very hard, I think, for American people to understand the idea of a king. I mean, we've lived in a Western-style democracy, a democratic republic. Representative republic is technically what we are. And we have certain civil rights and these sorts of things. And our concept of government is very different from a kingdom. This may be one of the problems why Americans have so much trouble with Christianity and being in the kingdom of God, because they don't see it as a kingdom. They think everything's a democracy. They think we're going to vote on everything. And like if 51% of you say, well, I like coffee, we ought to use coffee in the communion service instead of wine. That, well, that's, that's just what we decided because we're all democratic about everything. That's what's gotten the church sideways in 50,000 different ways in America, 
is all this idea we're just going to bring our opinions in here and we're going to vote on it and whatever we think is best is best. You're just molding a religion in the form that you like. You know, it, it seems silly to us when someone takes a piece of wood and carves it into some fish or an owl and then they overlay it with gold and they put it up on something and they bow down to it like the ancient Canaanites did. And say, That's ridiculous. Don't they know they made that thing with their own hands? And they're just going in there and bowing down to it. It's absolutely ludicrous. And yet, they do it. It's been done all through human history. And we do it in America with Christianity as well. We just don't build the gold thing. We don't build the wooden thing and put gold over it and bow down in that sense for the most part. We just take the doctrines and truths of the Bible and we shave them off and carve them off and say, we don't want this one, we don't want that one. We append three things that we do want in there. And we craft a religion of our own hands just as surely as those people who made idols in Canaan and we bow down to them. It's precisely the same thing. However, when you've got a king over you and you're living in a kingdom... You're not going to have this ability to influence your government and try to say, well, maybe we ought to have a vote about this. There ain't no vote in a kingdom. It ain't happening. The king is the one who's making the rules here. And he literally has the power of life and death. I mean, you, you, you imagine if you had a political enemy in America, if the president of the United States was very much against you, he could not call you into the White House and have the power of the sword over you and just command one of the Marines there to just kill you, right? That would be outrageous in American society because that's not the type of government that we see ourselves as having. But when you're in a kingdom, you're talking about people who really have sort of absolute rule over things. They can do whatever they want to. They can take your stuff. They can give it to somebody else. They can make your daughters work in their kitchen. They can put their, your sons in their army. You don't have any say in the matter. It's not like, well, I, I think I'm going to join the army after high school. <laughs> Anything like that. No. They're going to come put you in the army. No matter what you're doing. or what, Well, I was going to plan on finishing 12th grade before. I, no, no. You're coming with me. You see, you're going to be serving a king here. And this is what you wanted. You see that? They're getting what they wanted. And they didn't fully realize all the ramifications of what they wanted. Does that have any application in our lives? He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and his servants. And he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. He's taking your best guys, right? He's not going to come in and be like, well, who's there? You know, you got about 12 guys working on your farm here. Who are the loafers, Right. Who are the guys that are leaning up against the water cooler all day while the other guys are doing all the work? I'll just take them because I don't want to be a hassle. No, they're going to take the guys who are out there getting it done and leave you with all the worthless people, right? And you have to figure out how to get that done after that. So it's a serious matter that they've stepped into here. And I'm really not sure that they realize to what degree they've stepped into this. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you shall be his servants and you shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you and the Lord will not hear you in that day. That is a dreadful circumstance that they're going to find themselves in. Think about the reality that's taught here that you can persist in rebellion to such a degree that God allows you to have what you want 
it doesn't go well for you. And when you ask to be delivered from it, he says, I'm not going to hear you in that. This is taught in the Bible. It's very frightening. It's very frightening. Is it not what happened to the people in the wilderness? They got afraid to go over and take Canaan when the Lord said you should take it. And he said, well, now you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Most of you are going to die out here. You're not going to get a chance. Then I think the next day they were like, well, okay, we'll go now. No, there's no, chance, there's no second chance on this deal. So this is an incredible cautionary tale and one that's uh, dreadful and should give us pause about what our desires are and what we pursue. Verse 19, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Hearken unto their voice, and make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go ye every man unto his city. They're going to get what they wanted. And it's not going to go well for them in many respects. It should give us pause about what we're asking for and what we want. And uh, help us to redouble our efforts in pursuing what the Lord would have for us. And following His leadership. They want this judge to go out before them and to fight our battles. And, um, you know, they want a king over them. And in part, it's because that's what everybody else has. And this notion plagues God's people. It probably has a thousand different expressions, but we see what others have sometimes in the world. Maybe in the broader world of Christianity, or maybe just out there brokering in the carnal world. And we say, can't we just be a little bit more like that? Can't we be more like that? That's what we want. We want to do something, and by being a little bit more like them, we'll be a little less odd, and it'll take away some measure of our reproach. But who is that reproach coming from? That reproach is coming from people who don't care about the principles and precepts of the church. The people of other nations, Canaanites and Egyptians and whoever else at this time might have been looking at them, who would pour reproach on them for not having a king, they would do that because they don't have any regard for this God that is leading them. They see that and it's like, that's weird. What are those people? Some kind of religious cult running around over there in Canaan. They don't even have a king. You know, the people who would have contempt for this looking externally at it, are people who don't really have any thought of God in, in this respect. They're just, they're pagans, right? They don't know anything about this God, really. And so it's kind of like, why, why should God's people really care about that? First of all, you should expect that people like that are going to have contempt for religion or contempt for your theocracy in the Old Testament example. You should just expect it. But as we begin wanting to ingratiate ourselves with the world, as they did here, well, if we just had a king, maybe those people would, would take us more seriously. Well, as we do that and we step away from the principles and practices of the church, we just start conforming ourselves to the world and we introduce 
innumerable problems in our lives. I wonder how many problems we have, not only in the church, but in our own personal lives, simply because we want to be a little bit more like the world. I want to be a little bit more like that so it takes away my reproach. I don't want those people at work to think I'm a fuddy-duddy, a religious square that doesn't know how to have any fun, you know, can't laugh, you know, just a, a serious, dour kind of religious zealot. I don't want to be thought of like that, so maybe if I can just be a little bit more like them, it'll take away some of my reproach. It gets us into trouble, and it got Israel into trouble. Let's look over at Samuel chapter 12. In chapter 10, I'll give you chapter 10 as a uh, kind of a homework assignment, which does not apply to those of you who are reading through the one-year Bible. If you're reading through the one-year Bible, you don't have to take this assignment, but it'd be good for you to read it anyway. You'll get to it eventually if you, if you follow through on the one-year Bible. But read Samuel chapter 10, and I think it's very interesting, 1 Samuel chapter 10, because this is Saul being anointed king. This is when they actually made him the king. And you see God working in Saul's life. It's very interesting that there's this thing going on where God is giving, you know, had given Israel what they want, and yet he's still working in Saul's life. You know, here's the thing. If God's not working in the lives of some pretty messy people who've got a lot of problems and have a lot of bad inclinations and stuff like that, then he's not going to be working in anybody's lives. If we set the bar at, we've got to be totally perfect in every single respect. Otherwise, God's not going to be working with us. He's not going to be working with any of us. So we have to be careful about this. It's important that we follow God and do as we ought and be as diligent in that as we can be. But God is also gracious and merciful and has often blessed us in spite of the fact that we have not consistently done that, hasn't He? So that's the interesting observation for me in, in 1 Samuel chapter 10. But if we go over to chapter 12... We see Samuel's sermon. And this is very interesting. Samuel said unto the people, I'm in verse 6, chapter 12, verse 6. And Samuel said unto the people, It is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord which He did to you and to your fathers. He goes down and recounts all these various things that God had done for them. And in verse 13, he says, Now therefore, behold the king whom ye have chosen. You wanted a king? You got one. Here he is. And now we're going to lay out kind of the new arrangement here. This is what is the result of what you wanted here. And I would say in this, in temporal matters, the Lord is giving them, if you will, an opportunity to try to make the best of this that they can even in spite of the fact that it's kind of in rebellion to what God would have had them do or had commanded that they do. Now therefore, behold the king whom ye have chosen and whom ye have desired, and behold, the Lord hath set a king over you. If ye will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then shall both ye and also the king that reigneth over you Continue following the Lord your God. God has not utterly forsaken them. He's given them this thing and He's saying, I, you know, you're not going to be able to turn away from this having a king thing. That's what you wanted. You rebelled and rebelled and rebelled. Now I'm giving it to you. And there's no turning back from that. But here's the arrangement. You still ought to follow the Lord. 
You may have made a mistake in asking for a king to be appointed over you. And some of us may have made mistakes in our lives in a similar fashion where we said, this is something that I wanted and the Lord's now given it to me. You're not to take that and say, well, I'm just a total failure. I'm an utter failure now. And so there's no point in serving the Lord. No, we've all messed up. We've all made mistakes like this. Maybe we visited consequences into our lives. Nevertheless, we should still fear the Lord and follow Him, right? And that's what's being laid out here. Even in the face of the consequences of the things you've done wrong, you should still fear the Lord, serve Him, obey His voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. If you do that, then shall both ye and also the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. But if ye will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your fathers. See, there's still an opportunity here, even though they've kind of messed up and they've done the wrong thing and the Lord's given them over to this arrangement there's still an opportunity to serve the Lord that's set before them. And those two verses are what uh, we refer to as conditional time salvation. You see, there's an important word in that. If. When he says, if ye will fear the Lord, does that mean it is an ironclad guarantee that all of God's regenerate elect in this world shall fear the Lord to the fullest extent possible for all of their remaining days as they walk the face of this earth? Hallelujah, world without end. Is that, what, is that what the Bible teaches? Now the fact that there's an if here says it's entirely possible that God's people who do possess the fear of the Lord may not choose to fear God. They may have an innate sense that God is to be respected and feared, but every time any one of us sins, and we willingly do so, we know we're choosing that. I don't really fear God that much. I know he said he's going to bring these things into punishment, but I'm going to do it anyway because, well, honestly, I don't fear God that much, right? If you will fear the Lord, but if you will not obey. Very interesting there. He doesn't say if you will obey the Lord and if you will not obey. He says if you will fear the Lord and if you will not obey. What I think is implicit in that is the sort of fear of the Lord that is in view here makes it sure that you're going to be obeying the Lord. You see what I'm saying? Like, think of it this way. If you're obeying God in sincerity, there's a fear of the Lord involved in that. You see what I'm saying? And if you're disobeying the Lord, there's a sense in which you're not fearing God in that respect. Right? So, this gets set out before them. And I think we'll find as we go through this a little more, it doesn't really go well for them. Uh, but I don't want to go into too much detail on that. I want to move over to 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we'll probably close out here. Now, this is a little further on. Saul is now the king, and Samuel's coming to the end of his days. And this is the trouble that plagues us all. It's really the principle that's taught twice in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 14. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. This is what I call seems right doctrine. And we're all guilty of it. Now some people get pretty comfortable with the idea of, I got good horse sense and I kind of shoot from the hip. I'm instinctive about things. I kind of know what the right thing is here or there. And uh, 
Many people that may have served them quite well in their lives in many respects, just in natural or normal things. You may have be a little quicker on the uptake on, you know, how to fix a lawnmower or certain types of problems like that. You just kind of instinctively know what seems like the right way to handle it, and that's worked out for you. But people should have a little caution when they're approaching the decisions of their lives of being too quick to think, I'm going to do what seems right in this. There's a time to be a little bit more introspective than that because there's a way which seemeth right unto a man, but it turns out it's not so great. Now, the end thereof are the ways of death. So it's, it's kind of a high-stakes game that you're playing here. It's a serious matter. So as if that wasn't enough, if you turn over to, uh, and I told you not to turn, don't turn over to, to Proverbs 16 and verse 25, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Now, it's in there twice. It's literally in there, you know, like exactly the same way. Um, everything that's in the Bible is important, even if it's only in there once. But this is in there twice, and it's said exactly the same way. And I think that to me says we should all be a little bit more careful about following the seems right doctrine, right? If the only basis we have for we're doing one thing or the other thing in our lives is, well, that seems right, we should probably step back and say, well, but is that right? Because there's a way that seemeth right, the end thereof are the ways of death. So it gives us a moment to kind of step back and reconsider things. And I would say that the story we've told thus far about how Israel ended up asking for a king, they're already as a nation following the seems right doctrine, are they not? What seemed right is we're going to rebel against God and we're not going to do all this stuff for hundreds of years going back. Uh, We're going to get ourselves in this terrible state. And then what seems right is we're going to tell the prophet of God that we need a king. And that's going to solve all our problems. That seems right doctrine. And it's a problem. And now we're going to start to see some of the fruit of this seems right doctrine as it relates to Saul. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the Lord. Now, I'm going to shorten this a little bit because I'm up on time. Basically he says, uh, the Amalekites, go smite them all. Kill every one of them. Destroy all their stuff. And that's what you're supposed to do. Spare them not. So Saul goes to battle here. Verse 6, and Saul said unto the Kenites, go depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness unto all the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to Shur that is over against Egypt. That sounds pretty good. That's what he was told to do. Smite them all. Smite the Amalekites. Right? Verse 8, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. What's that? That seems right doctrine, right? I know I was told to obliterate these people. By the way, that is God doling out punishment on an incredibly wicked people. A lot of people take that story and go, well, they're they're going in there telling them to kill everybody. God is executing judgment on an incredibly wicked pagan society that has all kinds of horrible things going on. And God can certainly do that. It's interesting to me that most people would not object to the idea that God has the ability to send people to eternal hell. But they're offended by the idea that a nation could rise up against another nation and wipe those people out in a temporal sense. 
But that's what's going on. That's what they were commanded to do. But now Saul has invoked the thing whereby he was made king in the first place. He's invoked the seems right doctrine. Right? The people of Israel, they've been told, just follow the Lord, do as the Lord says. You don't even need a king. They say, well, that doesn't seem right to us. We want a king. So they gave him a king. And now that king that was appointed on the basis of seems right doctrine is invoking seems right doctrine to justify his own actions that are contrary to what God told him to do. See what I'm saying? This seems right doctrine has a way of breeding and metastasizing among God's people. And you see Saul practicing it even as it was used to install him as the king. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep. Well, it gets worse, right? There's some more seems right we got to do here. I know I said all the sheep, but there's some good sheep in there, man. You're going to destroy all those sheep? The best of the sheep? Look at those sheep. Best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fatlings and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. I suspect that in his mind, this probably started with Agag. Well, I'm not going to kill him. I'm going to do something with him. And once that idea grew, it's not hard to start extending it into other areas. Well, what about this? Just some good sheep, some good oxen. You see how it grows? And once you can justify one of those, how do you stop justifying all the others? Seems right doctrine, is it not? He would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refutes, that they destroyed utterly. No, I mean, I mean, clearly the, the lousy animals, we're going to destroy them because we want to obey God, right? Yeah, we're going to utterly destroy them. So that's what's going on there. So Samuel comes to visit. We'll skip down a little bit. Verse 13, And Samuel came to Saul... Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Has he? That wasn't the commandment of the Lord, but we're talking about seems right doctrine, right? It's what it seems like what God was telling me was to do it this way, even though that's not what he said. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleating of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? It's like the animals off in the distance tell me that you're lying through your teeth. You're working on seems right doctrine instead of what the Lord told you to do. And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. What he's saying there is we did it for God's sake. Think about that. You could justify it on the basis of, well, I'm actually doing this. I am. Here's what he's saying. I'm disobeying God for God's benefit. You see that? How twisted the seems right doctrine can get. Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone the way which the Lord sent me. 
I have brought Agag the king of Amalek and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. See, he's even got a way of trying to spin this so that he thinks he's obeying. Even in the midst of not doing what he did, he's saying, no, I did what he said. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. You see, eventually Saul comes around to admitting, yeah, I see what you're saying here. I disobeyed. But this is going to bring a judgment into Saul's life, and there's not going to be any turning away from it. It's a sad state that he finds himself in. Saul got himself mixed up in the idea of seems right doctrine. And that lesson is something that we all can take forward with us. I mean, I think we see innumerable ways among the broader world of Christianity where there are Christian people who are standing up supporting ideas that are identified as rampantly ungodly in the Bible. And they just say, there's nothing wrong with this. And it seems right to us, it seems loving, seems right to promote these sorts of activities. Whether it's abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, there's almost an endless list of things that are being imported into the churches of Christianity today. And people are saying, it seems right to me to be embracing these things. It seems right. But there's a trouble with seems right doctrine, and the end thereof are the ways of death. So it's an important lesson we can learn from Saul. There's two forms of seems right that are popularly practiced in Christianity today, and I'll set these before you as we close. One of them, I would say, is Christianity without church membership. That is a rising tide among Christian people. In fact, many churches and, and most of the, uh, or many of the so-called mega churches that really attract lots of people in have looked at the historical doctrines of the church, which is something like you need to be baptized to become a member of the church, and there's such a thing as church membership. And they've now said, you know, it seems like that might be an impediment to growing our assembly. I mean, those of you who've been baptized, those of you who have come forward and joined the church, recognize that there's some struggles in your life to do that. Sometimes people find it difficult. There's things you've got to work through. And, you know, if you were just, if it was just okay to, to never have to join the church or whatever, that you would not have had that struggle, let's just say. And I think a lot of major churches now have just completely backed away from the idea of church membership. They just say, there's really not a thing anymore. It's just a free-for-all. It's no different than the state fair. It's just whoever shows up here is the church, and there's no 
marriage. Of the, there's no bride. You know, there's no joining of the church. So this idea of Christianity without church membership is a, is a current expression of seems right doctrine in the broader world of Christianity. And it's problematic. It's kind of undermining principles that were taught in the original church the way God set it up to be. You know, the Lord founded the New Testament church. And it's kind of crazy to think, here's the one institution on this planet that was founded by the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And to think, I want to be a Christian, but I'm not a member of that institution. You follow what I'm saying? Is he the Lord? Did he found an institution? So there's that issue. And I think it's important. It's, it, we, it's why we stand where we do. We believe the Bible plainly teaches that the Christian church is something that does have membership. And we know who the members are and whatnot. So that's the first thing. The second thing, which I think maybe is bred by the first one in some instances, is church membership without participation. So there's people who join the church or who are attending church, and maybe they're not, they haven't joined because there's no concept of even joining anymore. But the participation is just, it's just willy-nilly. Whenever, you know, once in a while, when I feel like it, when I don't feel like it. And that's another dangerous aspect of seems right doctrine. Well, it seems like I don't want to go to church this Sunday, or, I, you know, I'm so busy, it seems right to, to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So those are seems right doctrines that kind of get us confounded and that we see in the world today. But we should all be aware and should uh, take in the lesson of Israel and of Saul that there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, the end thereof are the ways of death. And so we got to do something more than just what seems right. we got to follow the Word of God, do what He would have us do, serve in the kingdom. And we'll give you an opportunity to join, publish an open door to the church. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons, preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.